All right, Genesis 32 is where we pick back up from last time. We didn't quite get out of the 32nd chapter. In fact, we came right to this kind of very interesting account here in the Bible where uh, we find someone uh, wrestling with Jacob, the patriarch. And again, remember at this time we have been watching Jacob. He certainly is clearly following the call of God upon his life. At this point, that involved him after 20 years of being there in uh, Paddan Aram, heading back uh, to his homeland, back to his father's country. The Lord told him to depart now from where he was, to return back to the territory from whence he came. That was always a part of what God's plan was for him. And Jacob, in obedience, gathers together his rather large family, his wives, his children. He begins on this journey back uh, to the territory of his father's homeland. But yet, remember, with a tremendous amount of fear and apprehension in his heart, because he knows that that also means that he's probably going to encounter his brother Esau, which if you remember 20 years prior to that, Esau and him did not depart on good terms. In fact, Esau, his brother, literally wanted to murder uh, Jacob and Jacob realizes this he's had no interaction no communication he just assumes that his brother is still in the same state of anger towards him and animosity uh, so uh, because of that again the Lord graciously saw at the beginning of chapter 32 uh, sort of assuring him remember the angels of God came and met him and no doubt trying to just reveal to Jacob look Jacob I'm with you the presence of God is with you the protection of God is with you but Jacob uh, getting word uh, that Esau was coming and together with Esau there were 400 servants, uh, that kind of began to stimulate in his mind a tremendous amount of anxiety once again. He just perceived and from his uh sort of ability to reason out what he could see on the horizon. This meant that his brother had real ill intentions towards him. And from an outward perspective, it did sort of look that way. But the reality was, as we'll see tonight, uh, that was the furthest thing from the truth. God had worked in Esau's heart. Esau somehow, we don't have record of it, uh, had come to a place where he had let go that anger from the past. He had released the animosity. He had somehow been willing to forgive his brother uh, and did not have any intentions on, on harming him or trying to destroy him but Jacob unfortunately kind of does what Jacob was known for he resorts to kind of scheming and is kind of self-sufficient and independent spirit this was just kind of the nature of Jacob he was a very independent guy and he always knew how to scheme and solve everything on his own rather than just depend upon the Lord so remember Jacob after he prayed then began to uh, work things out in his own understanding. He started sending some over 500 plus animals in successive droves with his servants in advance to his uh, meeting area where he would meet up with Esau. And the idea behind these is he was trying to appease his brother because he was terrified. He was afraid and he thought maybe perhaps if I just keep sending him gift after gift, I'll kind of wear him down. I'll earn his favor. He'll forgive me. Maybe I'll take down a few notches his anger and kind of hatred towards me. And going through this process, he's now the night before he's about to encounter his brother. And we saw last time as we left off, and we don't want to rush through it, we made some comment in relation to it, where there at the beginning of verse uh, 24, Jacob found himself left alone. 
Uh, and God, no doubt, has orchestrated all these things because, again, God's going to bring Jacob through another experience in his life as a part of his spiritual journey where, once again, God is going to remove uh, a little bit more of Jacob's self-sufficiency, of his independent spirit, of that stubbornness that was within him that didn't want to allow him to just fully let go and just let God rule in his life. He believed in the Lord. That was evident. Jacob had a faith in God. Uh, he was a follower of the Lord. He believed the things of God were true. Uh, Jacob's issue, really in many ways, was what is what our issue is many times as well, where many times we'll embrace Jesus for salvation. We understand the concepts that we need a Savior but to come to that place where we really then surrender to Jesus as Lord of our life. And we really say, Lord, take control. Uh, I submit to you. I let go of the reins. I let go of the steering wheel. Take complete control of my life. And I want you to be in charge. And we just really let go of being in control. And we let the Lord become in control of our life. And, and this was a, a challenge for Jacob, particularly with his personality, because he was a talented self-sufficient, stubborn, independent type spirit, and he just had a way with his own capability of always just taking care of everything on his own and kind of felt like, I think in some ways, if you just want to be honest, like he really didn't quite need God's help as much as ultimately God had to show him that he did. And because of that, God now gets him to his place the night before he's about to beat Esau. In fact, it tells us in verse 22 that he was there. He had crossed over the ford of Jabuk. And interesting, that word Jabuk, when you look at it in the original language, it literally means emptying. And no coincidence about that because that's exactly what God was going to do. God was going to bring Jacob through an emptying process in his life. And really that is what the Lord is continuously seeking to do in all of our lives. I love what John ultimately says in relation to his relationship with Jesus, where John says in regards to Jesus, I must decrease and he must increase. And really that is, for the child of God, a process, a, a journey that the Lord is taking all of us through. It's a process of sanctification whereby even after we're saved, the Lord is seeking to conform us into the image of Jesus. He's seeking to bring us to a place of greater surrender and, and lordship of Jesus ruling over our life. And that's what the Lord's doing. He's kind of just emptying us. He's trying to get uh, everything out of us that stands in the way of us and our relationship with the Lord. And he's emptying out old habits and he's emptying out kind of that, that selfishness and, and, and self-dependent kind of attitude that we have to get us to where we're completely dependent upon the Lord. So here he is. He's at the ford of Jabuk. He's at the ford of emptying, the Hebrew tells us. And Jacob is left alone. And God sometimes has to get us in that place where we are left alone to really begin to work in our lives. You know, and some, sometimes there is a truly a divine uh Loneliness. There is a divine isolation where God isolates a man or isolates a woman and gets a person where he, uh, through circumstances and the ways he works, gets them to a place where he backs them into a corner all by themselves. And he puts them in that place where they are alone and they don't have their surroundings or the relationships of people and, and maybe other things that they were able to use as a support system or that distracted them and had their attention. And God gets us alone so God can get our attention sometimes. And God gets Jacob alone now. And it says, verse 24, and we'll just read down through this. It says, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. So all night long, this wrestling match takes place. Now, when he saw, 
that he did not prevail against him, that is, prevail against Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said to him, Jacob, let, or excuse me, the, the man, let me go for the day breaks. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. Notice ultimately, that is what the heart of God was. God wanted to bless him. And the Lord had to do this in his life to be able to bless him. The heart of the Lord, we really need to understand because honestly, hopefully it will decrease the amount of time that we spend when the Lord starts to wrestle with us for lordship and control and submission in our lives. It should decrease our efforts of resistance a lot quicker if we realize, look, the Lord's doing what he's doing. The Lord wants to bless you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. And a lot of times we are resisting the Lord and we're wrestling and fighting back against the Lord and all we're doing is ripping ourselves off. We think somehow that we need to retain control because if we let control over to God, then, oh man, life's going to really be bad and miserable. And the, the exact opposite of that is true. We're robbing ourselves of the blessed life God has for us when we wrestle and resist the Lord in ways in all of our lives. Ultimately, look, the culmination of this is that he blessed him there, and we know who this was that blessed him. It was actually the Lord himself, because it tells us in verse 30, Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, which literally means face of God. Jacob noticed his perception. He realized, for I have seen God face to face, and yet, he said, my life is preserved. So we know that this man, it tells us in verse 24, when Jacob was alone that begins to wrestle with him, is none other than what we often call a theophany, or a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, God is spirit, but here we have this pre-incarnate appearance where the Lord shows up, as we see a few times throughout the Old Testament, in the form of a man, even as we saw back in Genesis 18, where the Lord showed up with two angels, remember, like men, the form of men, and visited Abraham. Uh, and now the Lord himself comes, notice, and he begins to wrestle with Jacob. So just imagine this. Here's Jacob. He's all alone. He, he's separated from the family. It is pitch dark. He's nervous, he's anxious, his thoughts are just running rampant. Now God's got him alone, and all of a sudden, the, the Lord just, this man just begins to wrestle with him. Uh, and how terrifying that was. But again, Jacob is a fighter, he's a resister, he's a survivor. He knows how to take care of everything himself. He doesn't ever want to depend upon other people because he can pull any scheme or any trick or do whatever he needs to do to take care of things himself. That has just been his personality in the story of his life. And some of us are like that, a lot more than others. And Jacob was that to the maximum. So the Lord, notice, begins to wrestle with him. As I said last time, Jacob is not wrestling with the Lord. The Lord is wrestling with Jacob. And I point that out because sometimes we talk about, oh, you know, I was really wrestling with the Lord in prayer, and, and we need to really wrestle with the Lord through prayer and intercession. And I understand there's a dynamic with that, but that's not the case here. Here the Lord is wrestling Jacob. Jacob's not wrestling the Lord. The Lord is wrestling Jacob because he's trying to bring Jacob into submission. And the Lord will wrestle with us. 
True, we wrestle back and we fight back, but that's only to our own detriment. So the Lord just begins to wrestle him, notice, until the breaking of day. So Jacob was, he was strongly resisting. Can you imagine all night long? He's fighting off the Lord, fighting off the Lord. This was a tenacious guy. You're talking about a strong personality, a stubborn spirit. Some of us have a pretty stubborn spirit when it comes to wrestling and resisting the Lord tragically. All night long, this goes on. Verse 25 says, now when, notice, he, that is this man, the Lord saw that he didn't prevail against Jacob. And the idea isn't like, man, this guy's just got too good of moves. You know, I, just, I haven't studied these up in heaven. You know, maybe the angel should teach me a few different submission holds. That's not the idea here. You know, the idea that, that the Lord can't tame or can't control him. The idea is, is that when the Lord saw he didn't prevail in the sense that this guy won't say uncle. This guy just won't give up. I'm trying to get him to give up the easy. He just won't give up. I'm trying to get him to submit in a gracious way. Uh, when he saw that he didn't prevail in the sense that he didn't just submit and surrender after resisting all night long, notice, then the Lord touched the socket of his hip. And it says the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled him. So the Lord literally had to come to a point where he had to break him in a way much more deeply than what he originally intended to, no doubt. And keep in mind, the Lord could break us instantly, okay? In, in the very first uh, five minutes of the wrestling match, the Lord could have severely handicapped Jacob, as he ultimately had to do here, where he put his hip out of socket. And you can only imagine how painful that must have been for his hip to literally be out of socket as he's wrestling. And again, the, the Lord could have done that very quickly, very uh, severely, but the Lord is so gracious with us. He's so patient, and, and, he, and he's so, you know, kind of you know, patient in the way that he deals with us, and he does everything possible. He's so gracious in his dealings, but if we push him to the place where he has no other recourse than to do something severe in our lives, he cares enough about the condition of our soul that at times he will bring severe circumstances. And he will. He will allow something crippling in our lives. He will allow something to literally handicap us in such a way whereby it may cause pain or problems or just severely sort of, again, just knock our legs out from under us to do whatever he's got to do to get our attention because he cares so much about our soul. It doesn't have to be that way. But if we resist and struggle hard enough, the Lord at times has no other recourse than to resort to something more severe in our lives and this this was the experience of jacob and sometimes it's the experience of some of us we know that verse 26 it says at this point now again his hip is out of joint you can imagine the severity of the pain the the man then says let me go the day breaks and I was, my goodness how much longer are you going to keep resisting but notice verse 26 jacob says i will not let you go unless you bless me now Important to understand here the tone and the attitude of heart in which Jacob says this. Again, don't get the idea that even Jacob still being in pain from a dislocated hip is kind of being demanding as if somehow he has the upper hand that he's saying, yeah, no, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. Listen to what Hosea tells us in chapter 12 because it gives us commentary on the condition in which Jacob was saying this, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob, uh, Hosea 12, verse 3 and 4 says, Jacob took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. 
Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. So Hosea tells us that Jacob saying here, I will not let you go unless you bless me, that Jacob is saying this through weeping and through tears. The idea is that he has literally come to a place of such brokenness that he is now clinging to the Lord for dear life saying, you have got to bless me or I'm done. In other words, he's come to the place where he's come to the realization that unless you bless me, Unless you help me. And now he's weeping and crying out to God for favor because he realizes that his struggle has got him nowhere. And he's now begging God for favor. God, please, I need you in my life. I need you to bless me. I need you to help me. And he's clinging to the Lord. The idea is kind of clinging to the Lord in desperation, begging for God's blessing in his life because he realizes now his dependency on the Lord. Verse 27, so he said to him, what is your name? And he answered, Jacob, which remember means heel catcher, or another word for a conniver. Again, to catch someone's heel means you you trip them up from behind. The idea is so that you can then get ahead of them. And that was Jacob's personality, always striving and struggling with men to try and get ahead of them. Verse 28, the answer came, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, heel catcher, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And again, the term Israel, commentators dispute what exactly it means. It comes from a, you know, a compound word which speaks of, uh, you know, some say it means, you know, uh, to wrestle against God. Some believe it means prince of God or God ruled. I think when you look at the language of what's being described there, that probably... To be ruled of God or God ruled is what was meant there in the name change. And again, God changes his name to indicate the change in the disposition that he intended in his life and in his character. Up to this point, you've been Jacob. You've been a conniver. You've been a schemer. You've been a heel catcher. But now you will live governed by God. Now you will be ruled by God. This will now be the condition of your life. You've struggled with God and have prevailed and interesting he prevailed how he prevailed through submission he prevailed through surrender ultimately when god brought him to a place of brokenness that was how he prevailed you know one man said this i put this quote down he said the secret of your strength is the admission and acceptance of your own weakness that's how you prevail with god the way to prevail with god is to submit the way to prevail with god is to completely surrender and when the lord brings us to that place where we finally say uncle in a sense in our own life that's when we have really prevailed in regards to our interaction with god and jacob asked saying tell me your name i pray and he said why is it that you ask about my name and he blessed him there Again, that was always the heart of the Lord, to bless Jacob. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel. He says, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. So again, the Lord. A couple things we see from here. The Lord's the one who initiates wrestling with us. And he does it in all of our lives. And know that when the Lord begins to wrestle with you in your life, he is seeking surrender. He's seeking submission. That's what, when the Lord initiates wrestling, that's why he's wrestling with us. He wants to bring us to a place of submission. He wants to bring us to a place of surrender. Whether that is coming to Jesus Christ to surrender initially as the Savior of your life and, and letting him become Lord, or even as a follower of the Lord, as Jacob already was at this point, maybe you're saved, but maybe the Lord's been wrestling with you. 
and putting his finger on an area of your life and saying, look, you're still holding back in this area. And you won't let me have complete control in relation to this area of your life. And, and I want surrender. I want to do more in your life. I want to bless your life. I want to use your life. But as long as you're resistant in this area or resistant in your heart and you won't completely surrender and put all the chips out on the table, you're holding me back from blessing in your life. So know that when he begins to wrestle, the goal is he's looking for submission, for surrender. And our problem, again, like Jacob, a lot of times our problem as believers, it may not necessarily be immorality. Sometimes our problem as believers is just kind of an independent spirit that we're always trying to scheme and solve everything. And we want to we say that we walk with the Lord, but we want to use the Lord as our emergency lifeline when we really need him rather than living completely dependent upon him in every way. And the Lord desires more for us than that. Again, not always working a situation to attain our goal and agenda, but living in complete dependency upon him. And victory is when we are clinging to the Lord in desperation. When you're clinging to the Lord and you understand fully what Jesus meant where he said in John 15, apart from me you can do nothing. Now you're understanding victory. Nothing. Another way to say that is no thing. Apart from me you can do no thing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. That's victory. When we come to that place of realizing that reality and we are longing, Lord, if you don't bless me. Lord, if you don't bless what I do, if you don't bless me, I'm done. I have nothing to offer. As long as I think I still have something to offer, it's almost as if I put a, a, a clog in the artery of the heart of God that wants to flow towards me his blessing and the outpouring of his spirit because the Lord says, if you think you can still do something, have at it. Try it for a little while. And he'll, he'll allow us. The wonderful thing is Psalm 35 says the Lord has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. The Lord wants to prosper us and he wants to bless us, but he desires for us to be submitted and surrendered. And if he has to break us in order to bless us like Jacob, so be it. It's a good thing. It's a painful process at times in our lives, but he has committed to us enough that he will do whatever is necessary. So now here's Jacob. His hip is out of socket, and again, he can't run now. You want to talk about being completely dependent upon God? <laughs> this guy's hip is out of socket. How's he going to run now? And other times, oh, wait, I got a problem here. If worse comes to worse, I'll just bail and run. He can't run now. He's crippled. He's got to completely trust the Lord. He's got to be completely dependent at this point in his life. Verse 31 says, Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him the next morning, notice, and he limped on his hip. And see, it's that limp that is the mark of victory in his life. Because he's not walking in his own self-sufficiency, in his own pride and strength and arrogance. I'm so talented. I can take care of everything. I always solve. And He can't be self-reliant anymore because the Lord's broken him. The fact that he is a limping man, limping in his flesh, he is now completely dependent upon God in a way like he's never had to be before. And therefore, verse 32, the commentator says, To this day the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. So again, the commentator tells us to this day the children of Israel, they don't partake of that as a remembrance of what God did with the patriarch Jacob in this account. 
Chapter 33, verse 1, continues saying, Now Jacob lifted his eyes, again, here's the next morning, and he looked, and there Esau was coming with him and 400 men. And what's he doing? He's limping. <laughs> so he has no other recourse than to completely trust God. He can't run. He can't solve his own problem. He's got to face this, but he's got to face it in faith and dependency upon the Lord to work on his behalf. But we'll see that God did. And that's the thing. God had already worked on his behalf and wanted to teach him how to live by faith and dependency on him. So he, again, shows you that Jacob wasn't a perfect man. He's always kind of regressing a little bit. He divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front. Leah and her children, it says behind and Rachel and Joseph last so he kind of staggers the family notice in the order of sort of his liking again Rachel remember was his favorite wife so he puts Rachel and Joseph as kind of the last group he has the family set up in groups as they move towards uh, Esau should he begin to attack them those that were his favorite were closest to him and furthest towards the back and again you can see how later on the brothers would begin to have tremendous animosity towards Joseph. You can see early on here that there was sort of this favoritism thing that happened among the family that got unhealthy in relationships later on. Verse 3, then notice, Jacob crossed over before them. So he went ahead of the family and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And we know from ancient custom that is the way in which a king would be greeted. So Jacob here bowing down before his brother seven times again. He's just trying to show respect and reverence for the fact that the understanding that this is your territory, you rule over this territory, I'm not looking to steal something from you this time. And again, just in humility, he's trying to indicate that he wants to be submitted and respectful of his brother's territory, so he's bowing down even as one would kind of pay homage to a king. Verse 4, look at this. But Esau ran to meet him and slit his throat. No, that's what Jacob was thinking, right? All this time he's thinking, oh no, here he comes. And he's running at him and look what happens. It says, and he embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept together. So after all that, all that fear and concern and everything else, look exactly what transpired God had already worked in Esau's heart and we have no record of what happened but God had prepared the heart of Esau God had given Esau the ability to forgive to let go of the anger of the past and here you have this beautiful beautiful family reunion two brothers who for 20 years there was tremendous animosity and hatred and division between them and now they run together and they're embracing and they're weeping and no doubt just having a wonderful conversation of maybe what's transpired in their lives and indicating they wanted to just let go of the past. And I find it interesting in verse 4, there really is very little description in the chapter of them kind of drumming up the past and talking about everything. You kind of get the idea the past is the past. Why go back there? We don't need to rehash and talk about it. And it, Hey, it's done. It's the past. They embrace, they hug, they greet one another, they let go of what took place. Verse 5 says, He lifted his eyes 
And he saw the women and the children. And Esau said, Who are these with you? Jacob's response, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. I like that. I think that's a great statement as a father. Who, who are all these who are all these kids with you? Who, what is this great caravan and crowd? And, and again, this father's attitude he describes saying, these are the children that God has graciously given to your servant. Again, realizing, as the psalmist says, that children are a gift from the Lord. They're an inheritance. He says, the children God's graciously given to me. Then the maidservant came near, and their children, and they bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and she bowed down. And afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. And then Esau said, what do you mean? By all this company which I met. And he said to him, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. In other words, he's saying, Bro, I was trying to make sure that you weren't upset with me. That's what all this pomp and circumstance was for. I, I wanted you to know that I'm different and, and I'm not looking to steal from you or take from you despite what's happened in our past. These, he says, they were intended to find favor in your sight. But Esau said, No, I have enough. My brother, keep what you have for yourself. So Esau says, look, no need. I have sufficient. God has taken care of me. He says, I'm content. I have more than enough. I don't need any present from you or anything that you would want to give to me. He says, keep what you have. And Jacob, again, said, no, please. If I found favor in your sight, then receive my present from your hand. Inasmuch as I've seen your face as though I had seen the face of God... And you were pleased with me. Please, he says, take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. Now, that's an important thing that's taking place there because no man in that culture would receive any gift from an enemy. So part of this, understand, culturally was being played out in such a way whereby Jacob was testing the waters to truly see, have you genuinely forgiven me and have you released me from the prior pain and problems that existed between us because a person would never take anything from their enemy. So the fact that eventually, though they were trying to again be generous towards one, hey, I have enough, really, I don't need anything from you, I'm, I'm content, I have enough. And then Jacob insisting, no, please, please, I want to bless you. I have sufficient. God has blessed me with what he has. I want you to receive this blessing where Esau ultimately, after being urged, it says, received it. That clearly indicated between the two of them, hey, this is genuine. I'll receive something from you which indicates I see you as my brother. I'm willing to let go. And, you know, sometimes, you know, th there needs to be that indication that takes place when, again, a reconciliation takes place where, you know, more than just saying things, we need to demonstrate things. It is one thing to say, I forgive you. It is one thing to say, I'm willing to reconcile with you after this is in a problem. It's a whole other thing to demonstrate that. Again, the Bible tells us, let us not love in word and tongue, but in action and in deed. And this was a way that clearly they were able to demonstrate to one another the sincerity of their letting go of the past and his family members being willing to reconcile. So he receives the gift from him. In verse 12, Esau then continues saying, let us take our journey, let us go. 
and I will go before you. In other words, let's let's journey together. Let's go back probably and see our father and and I'll travel with you and my men will accompany you to keep you safe. But Jacob said, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir, which was the territory that Esau lived in. Now, what's taking place here sounds really good on the surface. Basically, what you have is Esau saying, look, hey, let's head out. Let's travel together. I have 400 men with me. Let's journey together. It'll be safer. We'll provide a protection to you, to all of your family. We'll journey together. Jacob right away speaks up and says, you know, hey, I, I really appreciate that. But the pace in which you and 400 armed men can move at in comparison to the pace that I can move at with all my flocks and herds. And he says, and, and I, look, I, I, have, I have children with me and the pace that they're able to endure, they have to move a little more slowly than the pace in which you can move at. Uh, and we would just hold you back or if we tried to keep up with your pace, it, it would just destroy us and, and, and wear us out, which is an interesting concept by just you know way of a sidelight there that Jacob again he's being dishonest in what he's doing here but the reasoning would seem very acceptable because you basically have a father here saying look I can't move at the pace that you can move at because I have small children and a family right now you know I think there's some wisdom to that and no doubt it was received as reasoning because that is good parental reasoning that there is a time and a place where we need to recognize the reality that, you know, the season of life that I'm in, maybe I can't move at the same pace that all the single people can. Or I can't move at the same pace that other people who don't have kids can. I need to move at the pace in which I can right now with the family I have, with the age children I have, at the season that I'm in in my life. And, and there's tremendous wisdom to the reasoning here that's being projected. Look, I can't move the way you and an army of 400 men can. I have responsibilities, I have a family, I just can't travel at that pace. But what Jacob is doing, unfortunately, is he's resorting back to acting like Jacob again. Because what he's doing here really is just telling a flat-out lie. <laughs> he's just scheming again. He had absolutely no intention of going to Seir and traveling with Esau, and rather than just telling him, and again, I don't know exactly why, I don't know what the reasoning is behind it, whether he's still was nervous or whether he just did not want to go with his brother and spend more time with him. Maybe in Jacob's perspective, he's thinking, look, I, you mean, I, I forgive you, you forgive me, but I really don't have any interest in being with you. I mean, that could have quite honestly been Jacob's attitude. The bottom line is he's not honest about it. Instead of just communicating openly and honestly, he uses this line, look, you go ahead I can't move at the pace you can move at because I got a, a wives and children and flocks and herds. So you go ahead and I'll just come along slower and I'll eventually catch up, he says to him, verse 14, until I come to my Lord, referring to Esau, in Seir. Verse 15, Esau said, well, now let me leave with you. How about I leave with you just a few men, he says, who are with me? In other words, okay, I'll leave, I'll leave a few of my men at least to keep you safe. To provide you some protection. But Jacob said, no, 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 what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day 
on his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth, and built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock, and there the name of that place is called Sukkoth, or literally booths, the idea is. So, again, if you know geography, and if not, you see exactly what I'm referring to here, Esau begins to travel his way back to Seir, where he is headed is basically due south. It tells us in verse 17 that Jacob, as soon as they part company, he basically heads northwest. So Jacob goes, or Esau goes southeast, and Jacob turns right around, and he goes north, and he heads west up to the area of Sukkoth, and he goes in the complete opposite direction. So he never had any intention on going where his brother was. For whatever reason, he's headed in a totally different direction. And verse 18 says, And then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, so he's officially back in the land now, when he came from Paddan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money, and then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohi Israel, or literally God, the God of Israel. So, at this point now, Jacob goes directly the opposite of his brother. He goes north first to the area of Sukkoth. He resides there for a time, builds a place to live, has his animals there, booths, kind of like some pens for his animals. Then, after a season of time, he actually now crosses over into the Jordan, verse 18 tells us, and he safely arrives back into, it says, the land of Canaan, and he enters the city of Shechem, and verse 19 says he bought a parcel of land there where he pitched his tent from this man Hamor, uh, excuse me, from the children of Hamor, uh, of the people of the Shechemites. Now, you don't buy a piece of land if you don't plan on permanently staying somewhere. Would you agree with that? You know, when you're a tent dweller, when you purchase a piece of land that's probably a pretty good indication if you're going to buy real estate that you plan on staying in a particular area. Uh, if not, you wouldn't spend the money. And Jacob now buys a piece of real estate in the city of Shechem, and it says that he then erects an altar there, calls it God, the God of Israel. But what you need to recognize is at this point, Jacob is still living in half-hearted obedience. The Bible tells us that God told him to go back to the land of his fathers. He's in the area of Shechem, which basically is about in central to north Israel, where he's supposed to go is back to the area of Bethel or Hebron, which is down in the south. And he's settling in with sort of half-hearted obedience, and he's not following completely through and going all the way to where God told him to go. And this is always a problem, because he's not following God completely. And listen, half-hearted obedience or partial obedience is just disobedience. When God tells us to do something and God tells us to go exactly to a particular point, until we get to that point, we're not in obedience. Any delays, any detours that we take, any times where we choose to settle somewhere else for a different season despite our reasoning really is disobedience. And interesting to me that it says that he erects an altar there. And again, a place of sacrifice. But just because he erects a place of sacrifice 
really, we need to remember, the Bible says that God is not interested in sacrifice. God's interested in obedience. And sometimes we want to half-heartedly obey, but then give God a few sacrifices. Well, yeah, I mean, but I got an altar. I'm making some sacrifices at least. And God says, look, I don't care about your sacrifices. I want your obedience. I'm not looking for you, again, as if somehow God needs our sacrifices. And sometimes we almost think we can buy God off. Well, God, I sacrifice a little bit of my time, or I sacrifice a little bit of my money, or I make a few sacrifices for you here there, and God says, look, I don't care about your sacrifices. I want your obedience. I want you to obey me. Sacrifices and offering isn't what God's necessarily concerned about. God is concerned with an obedient life where we follow him 100%, where we go where God tells us to go, we do what God tells us to do. And he settles now in the area of Shechem, which is a basically very pagan, ungodly Canaanite territory. And as the result of being where he's not supposed to be, he puts his family in tremendous jeopardy. He goes to an area amongst a very pagan, ungodly people, and as a result of being where he's not supposed to be, he exposes his family to things, and his family suffers tremendous repercussions because he's not in the will of God. And he's not where he's supposed to be. And maybe he could justify, well, I'm strong enough to handle it. And maybe he was, but his kids weren't. And his children were not able to handle the things that they were exposed to. And ultimately, because he's not where he's supposed to be, his family begins to deteriorate and to struggle spiritually. And that's what chapter 4 really is a record of. It's, it's kind of a sad chapter. It's a very dark chapter in the book of Genesis and a very dark chapter, really, in the life of the the people of Israel. But it's the direct result of Jacob not being where Jacob is supposed to be. Look at chapter 34, verse 1. It says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. So here's Jacob in the city of Shechem, where he's not supposed to be. And now his daughter, and again, we're not certain. Was she the only daughter of Jacob? There's reference later on to let us marry your daughters, plural. So I don't know for certain if she's the only daughter at this point. If she is, Think about it. She's the only daughter with 11 brothers. So she's kind of hungry for some fellowship. She wants some friendship. And whatever leads to it, it says that Dinah, one of his daughters now, look at verse 1. It says she went out to see the daughters of the land. She's like any young kid, teenager probably at this point. And she's hungry for fellowship and she's hungry for friendship. But she goes out to seek friendship and fellowship and acceptance with the daughters of the land. The idea is with the people of the ungodly nations around them. And she now goes out from under the covering and the protection of her father and the fellowship of God's people together with her brothers. And she goes to find fellowship among the daughters of the land. And whenever any young person begins to go seek fellowship among the ungodly world around them, they always put themselves in tremendous jeopardy. And she makes herself very vulnerable. And as a result of being in a place where she is vulnerable out from under the covering and protection that she should have been in, she's out among the daughters of the land. And verse 2 says, And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, a prince of that country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. Again, whether this was, was rape and this was forced sexual you know activity or whether this was consensual in some sense whereby he just convinced her and persuaded her to ultimately sleep with him the bottom line is the bible still says 
that, that she was violated. She was a young, unmarried girl who ended up either being raped or being seduced into sexual immorality by this young man in the territory. The Hebrew indicates to defile or to humble. So she now finds herself in a place where sexual sin has happened in her life. She's been taken advantage of. She's now lost her purity because she was out among the daughters of the land. And verse 3 says that his soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So again, it's hard to picture the word love there in the sense that we do. You know, he... He, 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 however, is attracted to her. He wants to have a relationship with her. He's developed a bond. So Shechem, verse 4, the one who slept with Dinah, spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this young woman as a wife. You can sense there's a bit of a selfish uh, overtone there. He just he wants this girl. So he says to his father, again, recognizing the customs of that day, that marriages still had to be arranged. But he wants this girl. He's infatuated with her now. He's slept with her. There's a bond. There's a strong attraction. And he says, I don't care what you have to do, Dad. I want this girl as my wife. Do what you got to do. Make an arrangement. I want to be able to marry her. Get me this young woman as my wife. And verse 5, Jacob heard that he had noticed defiled Dinah, his daughter, and his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. So Jacob waited until they came back in from the field so that he could talk amongst his sons about what had happened. And verse 6 tells us that Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob at the same time were coming in from the field when they heard about what happened. And notice, her brothers were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. So again, if this is an only daughter and 11 brothers, can you picture what that's like? When you got one girl and 11 brothers, there's a little bit of an overprotective environment. And they just found out now that their teenage sister, uh, some prince of the land, again, potentially almost have like a statutory type rape here, maybe uh, someone who's a young man, a young adult, has now slept and violated their teenage sister. And it says that they are both grieved and very angry. They are upset because somebody has just abused and taken advantage of the innocence and the purity of their sister. Again, what part she had to play is irregardless. They're upset and they're angry that this young man has basically taken advantage of their sister and done this disgraceful thing, it says, which ought not to have been done. But Hamor, verse 8, the father of Shechem, the young man that did this, spoke with him saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves. Now take note, there's no apology here. There's no sense of, hey, I deeply regret what's happened. This father doesn't say, look, we're very sorry. Please forgive us. The only thing on his agenda is trying to get this girl 
for his son that wants to marry her at this point. And really, he has other ulterior motivations. He's saying, look, why don't we just make a treaty? Let's begin to marry our sons and daughters together. And what does he see in Jacob? Bling, bling, dollar signs. Jacob's a prosperous, wealthy man. And he says, look, why don't we you know, intermarry our children, live among us, he says. Let's trade in the land, acquire possessions. He sees in Jacob a great opportunity to become wealthy and to enrich his territory. So in a very selfish motivation, no apology, no sense of we're very sorry for what we've done, please forgive us for offense. He's just completely being selfish, and this just enrages the sons of Jacob all the more Verse 11 says that Shechem said to her father, so that the young man now speaks up to Jacob and to the brothers, saying, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and a gift, and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as my wife. You see how insistent and determined he is? And, and what's he saying? Look, I don't care what it costs. I have got to have her, which shows you exactly really what this young man's perspective was. He just viewed her as a piece of property. I don't care what the price is. Whatever the price is, I'll pay it. You just name the dowry price, name the gift. Just give me this woman. I have got to have her. And he's become so infatuated and attached with her that he's willing to do whatever and this is really what continues to perpetuate more anger among the brothers because they feel like, what do you think our sister is? Just a prostitute? You can just buy her? You just want to use her as a piece of, you're willing to pay whatever price as long as you can have her as a piece of property? And, and he's saying, look, whatever it takes, whatever the gift, just give me the young woman. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, notice, and spoke deceitfully. Now, Here's what happens. The passivity of Jacob causes his own sons to enter into further problems because they see their father's not doing anything. Their father's just sitting there passive. And because he's a passive father and he's not rebuking anyone, he's not standing up for righteousness, he's not doing anything to resolve the situation, they think, well, look, if dad's going to be a pushover, then by golly, we're going to solve this problem ourselves. And sadly, the passivity of a father now is what precipitates some of the sins and the mistakes of his own children. And here it says now they come up with their own little plan, which watch what they do. They speak deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah, their sister, and they said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. We have this custom. See, we, 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 we need you to be on the same place where we are at in relation to our covenant with our God, and they now use the covenant of circumcision as something in a very blasphemous way to take advantage of men who they want to pour out their anger upon. So verse 15, they say, but on this condition, here's the condition, if you want to have Dinah as your wife, we will consent to you. If you become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, no, not just one of you, if you circumcise all the men in your town... Then we'll give our daughters to you and take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you'll not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. Verse 18, this is almost shocking to read. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem 
Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do this thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter, and he was more honorable than all the household of his father. And now, again, it, it pleased him. I'm sure it didn't please the rest of the men of the town. <laughs> hey, the, our prince wants to marry that daughter, and there is one little condition. We have to be circumcised. But by golly, we're going to get really rich, and I'm sure they just kind of slipped that in there because the whole town had to submit to this. So these are the conditions. Verse 20 says, Hamor and Shechem, his son, come to the gate of their city. They speak with the men of the city. And this, again, is probably where they slipped it in very quickly. These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. Hey, we're going to get really rich. Economy is going to boost and it's going to grow. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters. Hey, you guys are going to get wives and, and let us give our daughters and we'll, we'll intermarry with them. There's only one condition. If we can consent to have them dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us is circumcised, we will not. And he probably just slipped that in there, I'm sure, real quick. Will not their livestock, their property, again, see where their focus is, every animal of theirs be ours, only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male, amazing, was circumcised, and all who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain, and again, keep in mind, in that day when they're circumcising, no sterile environment, okay, no nice, clean scalpel. You're, you're talking about with a stone. You get the idea. Ouch. Okay, you get the envisionment in your mind there. Three days after this happens, they're incapacitated. All the men now are in pain, maybe infection, fever set in. They are recovering from a very rugged surgical procedure where they are completely weakened and incapacitated and it's on the third day when they're in pain that here's where the plot unfolds the two sons of Jacob Simeon and Levi Dinah's brothers each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males and they killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and they went out and the sons of Jacob came upon the slain they then plundered the city because their sister had been defiled they took their sheep their oxen their donkeys what was in the city and in the field and all their wealth they took all their little ones and their wives captive and plundered all that was in the houses and Jacob said to Simeon and Levi you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, since I am few in number, and they will gather themselves against me and kill me, and I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, verse 31, the two sons, should he treat our sister like a harlot? Again, notice what happens. They now just take matters into their own hands, and the sons go out and they make a mess. And they go out and commit another heinous act on top of what's already happened. And instead of solving the problem, they make a bigger problem themselves as they go through and they murder the entire city. They start murdering all the men in the entire city. They plunder everything. And now, interesting verse 30, finally is when Jacob speaks up 
and he tries to then rebuke his sons for the problems they've got themselves into that they've now made him and his family reputation obnoxious in the entire city. And they, they, they rebuke their father back. So, look, should he have treated our sister like a harlot? And he speaks up, but a little bit too late now. And his passivity now comes back around where he now tries to confront his sons for what they've done. And his sons, rather than respecting him and responding him, in essence, rebuke him back and say, well, look, you let him treat our sister like a harlot. You never did anything about it. And since you didn't do anything about it, we took matters into our own hands. And how tragic to see, and what I want us to realize, is to see the family breakdown that took place as the result of one man, Jacob, really, dwelling in a place where he was not supposed to be, being in half-hearted obedience, and being passive as a spiritual leader in his home, and how the breakdown of the family, his daughter ends up going out and getting involved in things among the daughters of the land, cause her to lose her purity. She struggles and gets into things that she shouldn't. The sons then recognize that their father is not being the man that he's supposed to be. They then just completely go out of control and begin to do things that cause nothing but bigger problems. Amen. What a tremendous reminder of us of the importance for each and every one of us to be fully obedient in our lives to the thing that God's called us to do. So that we don't put ourselves in a place where not only we're vulnerable, but the people who are connected to us become vulnerable as well, especially as parents. Especially as parents. What a sad testimony because how many times, and it may not be in those same circumstances, I have watched, I have watched things play out where a parent wants to be spiritually passive and they want to be friends with their kids instead of trying to be a parent with their kids or they think, hey, well, I can handle this and maybe they can. But the kids can't and they expose the children and they, they allow the children to be exposed to things that they can't handle and, and the kids get themselves into a mess and they become the victims and they become the ones that are hurt and harmed. You know, man, we, we really do. We need to pray for the family unit in our culture among the unsaved as well as in the body of Christ. Because our, our, you know, the, the Hivites and the Canaanites, the daughters of the land, it, it's, it's messy out there. And it's real easy for our kids to get involved in things. And if they don't have direction and guidance and are not in a place where we're helping them with boundaries and a covering in their lives, boy, it's really sad some of the losses and things that they can go through as some of the things maybe that we ultimately precipitate as parents. So kind of a sad testimony. The good thing is chapter 35 is Jacob recognizes his errors and he turns things back around. And, and praise God that there's always that opportunity for us to do those things. Father, thank you for, Lord, this section of Scripture. And Lord, we ask for each one of ourselves in this room this evening that, Lord, would you... Do whatever it takes, Lord, to wrestle with us. And Lord, that we might submit and surrender quickly. Lord, we don't want to or desire to make the mistakes that we see in this section and that we know that we're all capable of making. So Lord, help us. Thank you for recording these things honestly, Lord, for not glossing over and holding back and, and hiding from us the mistakes of men and women even who those who are men and women of God, Lord, it's encouraging to see 
that we can fail and yet, Lord, still you can redeem even our errors and mistakes. But, Lord, would you guard us and keep us, help us to be fully obedient that we might avoid the errors and mistakes of our own lives and the problems that we can cause to our loved ones as well. And we ask these things and for your help in this week ahead in Jesus' name. Amen.